When you think about the planets in the solar system, chances are you think of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and maybe Pluto. For those of you who came of age before 2006, Pluto was commonly known as the ninth planet, but a number of discoveries recently challenged that, and now we think Pluto is better categorized as one of a significant but non-one number of planet-like objects around its size that originate in the outer solar system of most solar systems. So Pluto's been demoted to a dwarf planet. But a new question has opened up that's equally fascinating. Might there be a large super Earth-like world beyond Neptune? This is the question about Planet Nine, and we're going to investigate these and many more questions about Pluto, planethood, and the edge of the solar system here on the Starts With a Bang podcast. My guest this month is astronomer Mike Brown. He is a professor at Caltech. He is affectionately known as Pluto Killer for his role in the discovery of Eris and the eventual demotion of Pluto and why it had it coming, as well as the co-proposer for the hypothetical Planet Nine, which is extremely controversial, but a fascinating possibility. Mike Brown, it's fabulous to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You know, I think for a little perspective, it might be worth sharing with our audience how for decades and decades and decades from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, and even into the 70s, Pluto was the only world beyond Neptune that we knew about. If we could find Pluto with 1929 technology, why did it take us half a century to find the second object beyond Neptune, which happened to be a moon of Pluto, its giant moon Charon? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it, it, it is sort of the reason why Pluto got solidified as a planet in people's mind, because it really was the only thing out there known for such a long time. And it's really, it's just a, a fluke of where Pluto was in its orbit and the technology that was available at the time. So Pluto is, uh, comes a little bit closer to the, to the sun than some of these other large objects out in the Kuiper belt. And the technology that was available, photographic plates on moderately small telescopes, could just barely see something as bright as Pluto. The other large bright objects that, that we now know about, things like Eris, which is more massive than Pluto, things like Makemake, which is nearly as bright as Pluto, uh, at the time of Pluto's discovery, they both, just by chance, were at the most distant points in their orbit. They're on very elongated orbits and they were quite far away. And so they were faint. If it hadn't been that way, then all three of them could have been find, found by Clyde Tombaugh in 1930 when he found Pluto. I think if that happened, people would very quickly have found Pluto, found Eris, found Makemake and said, oh yeah, okay, this is just like the asteroids when we first found asteroids. Found one, found a second, found a third and realized that it's just a big collection but instead, it took until 1992, until the next uh, independent Kuiper Belt object was found out there. And that's really interesting, because even though you said it wasn't until 1992 that the next independent Kuiper Belt object was found, this word, this phrase that we've been tossing around for, you know, 
almost the entire century of Kuiper Belt, this was well known. This wasn't really disputed. So what what was the reason that there was such a big sea change in the early 90s as opposed to throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, where where we strongly suspected there was this large population of objects out there, but we just hadn't found them yet? Yeah, I, I don't think I actually agree with that characterization. I, don't, I, don't, I think most people did not believe that there was a collection of bodies out beyond Neptune. Uh, people knew about the Oort cloud, had been talking about the Oort cloud since since Oort proposed it in 1950. The Oort cloud is this collection of, of comets that are kind of in deep freeze at the very edge of the solar system. But the Oort cloud is a hundred times further away than this region that we call the Kuiper Belt. The Kuiper Belt really is the region of space just, just beyond Neptune. And people had talked about it. Kuiper, it's named after Kuiper because Kuiper speculated about it, but he really didn't say anything other than, wow, you know, I wonder if there's something out there uh, beyond beyond the planets and maybe it would be a, a belt of small bodies. And then in the, the mid-1980s, some astronomers, when they first really got good computer simulations of how the gravity interacts in the outer solar system, they realized that something like the Kuiper Belt, a band of stuff beyond uh, beyond Neptune, could be responsible for some of the comets that we're seeing. And so people started thinking, maybe there's something out there. But really, it wasn't until that first one was discovered in, in 1992 by Dave Jewett and Jane Liu that, uh, that people really started to take it seriously. And even after that very first discovery, there were people who thought, uh, you know, there's one. They just found one. There's not anything else out there. And then then there was two, and now there are thousands of them out there. So it really was uh, a slow dawning that this this Kuiper belt was out there. You know, and that that's really interesting because, you know, we're just a few weeks out from uh, the 2019 Nobel Prize being awarded, and half of that prize went to the discovery of the first exoplanets, or at least the discovery of the first robust, verified exoplanet around a sun-like main sequence star. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> and, and it's pretty interesting that both of these explosions of exoplanets being found around stars other than our sun and these objects found in the Kuiper Belt, even with discoveries of objects like Sedna, arguably objects that extend all the way to the inner Oort cloud. Um, it's really interesting to me that both of these advances happened at right around the same time. This is something that I think most people don't appreciate about a science like astronomy, where a lot of the advances that you make are driven by pushing the limitations of your current instrumentation. You know, you know, it's also interesting about that connection is that you would, you would think that those two discoveries and, and the science of those two discoveries was, was relatively independent. And yet uh, th there was a very, very important connection. When, when the exoplanets were first discovered, they, they, the ones that were discovered were these hot Jupiters, Jupiter-sized things that had, were on orbits inside the orbit of Mercury. And everybody was pretty convinced the only way you could get a hot Jupiter is if somehow you formed the Jupiter-sized planet at about where Jupiter is today and migrated it inward. So the idea that planets can move around started getting very popular in the exoplanet world. People hadn't really thought about that very much in the solar system. There had been some suggestions, but nobody took them very seriously. And, and suddenly, when the idea that planets could move um, – 
started to to come into vogue, it was realized that the Kuiper Belt actually records the movements of the giant planets in our solar system. We now know that Neptune, Uranus, Saturn all migrated outward. Jupiter migrated inward just a little bit. And we see that pattern um, written in the orbits of the Kuiper Belt objects that we see today. And that was figured out more or less the same time as the exoplanets. And I, and I think it really was important for people to get their heads around the fact that giant planets can move. Now, this this is really interesting. And this is this is sort of pushing up against the edge of where my knowledge goes. But luckily, we have you um, who knows a lot more about the outer solar system than I do. So when we as far as I understand it, when we look at the Kuiper belt, right, there are all sorts of imprints that are left on the, uh, you know, statistically on the classes of objects we have in there. Uh, for example, there are these bluer objects and there are these redder objects and, and Pluto happens to be one of these redder ones, but they're distributed differently as far as what what exists uh, in the inner Kuiper belt or the outer Kuiper belt or uh, is scattered further out of the disk. Uh, we start to see regions in the Kuiper belt, you know, beyond Neptune where you have lots of objects um, in a certain resonance, in a certain orbital resonance with the other planets and their current locations. Um, and then we see gaps, and then we see more objects, and then we see gaps. And at the edge somewhere, uh, you know, a certain number of astronomical units out, I forget the exact number, uh, we have what we call the Kuiper Cliff, where we expect all of a sudden we're going to see a dramatic drop in the number of objects out there. And as our telescopes have improved, as our instrumentation has improved, as we've taken larger and larger surveys, um, I believe we've, we're actually starting to see evidence for all of these features in the Kuiper Belt today. Is that Does that jibe with your understanding of this? And would you like to maybe refine some of what I said? Yeah, so so there's there's so much going on out there. Yeah, it's, it's hard to... to to get it all in, in one, uh, one quick summary. Um, but there are, there are a couple of really critical things that, that we can read from looking at the Kuiper belt. And, and one is you mentioned these resonances. Resonances are where you're in a very special orbit where, for example, if you're in a resonance with Neptune, Neptune might go around three times, go around the sun three times. You go around the sun precisely two times in that same time period. That means you're in a three to two resonance with Neptune. And in fact, Pluto is in precisely this, this resonance, as are uh, many, many hundreds of other known objects in this same resonance. And they're forced to be there by Neptune. And they're forced to be there because Neptune slowly moved its way out through the Kuiper belt and basically... As it moves its way out, it took these objects, captured them into the resonance, and then pushed them out to kind of like a snowplow. So you can now look at all these objects in resonance and and basically read off how far Neptune has moved around and, and how it's migrated outward. Likewise, you mentioned these the, the, the different colors of Kuiper Belt objects. It's, it's a little sad that we have to talk about colors as our main uh, criterion. Uh, color clearly has something to do with composition. But these objects are so small and so faint that we don't know much else about them except for their color for the most part. But it's true. There are there is a collection of very red objects on pretty circular orbits out beyond Neptune. And we think we think they're actually the only objects maybe in the entire solar system that still exist where they formed four and a half billion years ago. Then there are objects that are 
scattered uh, throughout the, the solar system, including things that come into the Kuiper Belt, probably got a little too close to Neptune at one point and got flung onto these really distant orbits and then that come back in. And uh, these are ones that eventually lead to objects like Sedna that you also mentioned. There's just there's so many different little things that you can see. Every time we find a new collection of objects out there, we can we can learn so much more about uh, the the history of basically how the how the planets rearrange themselves, right? Which which is to say, we've learned so much about what's out there and what the history of our solar system is by by examining all the objects we can in as much detail as we can. But at the same time, like you say, there are still so many unanswered questions, so many things we don't know. And I think for all the Plutophiles out there, which, you know, I like to say includes me right up until someone tells me, then why don't you say it's a planet? Um, I like to think, you know, the New Horizons mission was incredibly illuminating for showing at least one example with Pluto and I guess with Charon too of why a world such as this might be red. And I know these are really the only Kuiper Belt objects that we've visited up close that are of substantial size that we've that we've looked in detail with, but but having an answer for at least one system should provide a, a clue, if not a template, as to what's going on in the other soul in the other objects that are similarly colored. Yeah, in, in some way, you actually ways you could you could argue that that Pluto and Charon were kind of a poor choice for uh, the first objects in the Kuiper Belt to send a spacecraft to, because they're on the large size, and so they're not very representative of most of the objects in the Kuiper Belt. But the good news is, after Pluto and Charon, uh, the New Horizon spacecraft um, flew by uh, MU sixty nine. It's got a year 2014, 15, whatever, whatever year it is of MU69. It's just a license plate number. And that is a much more representative of what a typical object um, in, in and at least that region of the Kuiper Belt is like. So in many ways, we, we can learn more by those than by by some of the, the, the big, uh, more flashy objects. Pluto and Sharon are very flashy. It's, it's, it's fun to see them, uh, to be sure. But as, as general objects to learn more about, I think the small ones are actually much more interesting. Right. And these objects, I think, are really fascinating because um, because these really represent what was the large majority of the material that our solar system was formed from. Uh, you know, when we see these leftover Kuiper Belt objects, like, like MU69, the small one, MU69 is the small uh, snowman object some of you may have seen that when they examined it closer actually looked like both of the bumps on the snowman are more like pancakes than they are like spheres. So it was... It's a, it's a weird, weird object, I tell you what. Yeah, it was absolutely a surprise um you know i remember even after seeing the original snowman being really surprised at the 3d reconstruction that they were able to do but that's that's sort of the joy of doing science is opening up that frontier having an expectation and what you'll find in some ways will agree in some ways will disagree with your expectations but there's always the opportunity to learn something there and for me being able to look at these objects and say wow this is what Earth's mantle and most of the mantles of all the planets actually probably were formed from, you know, four and a half billion years ago. My, minus the ice. There's there's much more ice out there in the outer solar system than than the Earth ever got uh, much, much closer in and warmer. But the, the rocky parts, the dusty parts, 
those are all have to be more or less the same stuff. And we can really start to see it and try to understand how it's starting to put itself together. Right. And so what you talk about is ices, when you bring them too close to the sun um, or any uh, source of heat and radiation, uh, they will melt, right? These volatiles, these ices, they will evaporate, they will sublimate, they will they will be blown off of a world unless it has an awful lot of mass, which is why when a Kuiper belt or Oort cloud object flies into the inner solar system, they develop these tremendous tails that can create meteor showers that um, you know that create debris streams that that are really spectacular sites but that's also why um, you know you want to look at what's there besides the ices if you want to know what's the material that winds up in terrestrial like worlds in the inner solar system and pretty much I like to use the start of the asteroid belt as that's the maximum distance that something could have been at. Uh, and still have ISIS today. Yeah, I would say that's about right. And uh, I, I think, you know, so I, I love the opportunity to study these objects out there in the, in the Kuiper belt. When you bring them in and you start to see them evaporating when they're comets, when they grow these tails, it's kind of like something that out in the Kuiper belt, it's something that's been in deep freeze for four and a half billion years. And when you bring it into the inner solar system, it's something that was in deep freeze but now it's sitting on your counter and starting to evaporate. And so if you really want to know what it's like before it starts to evaporate, you got to get out there and, and see it yourself. Yeah. And, and remarkably, we've been able to do that for our first couple of objects. And one of them, MU69, um, absolutely looks like, you know, a the prototypical object we expect to find that that hasn't been touched, that hasn't had a gravitational interaction, that doesn't have its own, um, you know, uh, dwarf planetary system around it, something that just appears to be an isolated object that hasn't run into anything. And that's really, you know, a remarkable story of how we were able to eventually learn how to view these primeval materials that have largely been untouched since the formation of the solar system. But now that we take all of that, um, I want to come to this big question that I think a lot of people out there um, who are astronomy enthusiasts, but maybe not professional astronomers or astrophysicists, are a little bit confused about. When you take everything that we've learned about the Kuiper Belt, about orbits, about objects, um, the IAU made a very controversial definition of a planet in 2006 that excluded Pluto. Um, but I think even though that definition has flaws and nits you can pick with it, it's still very clear that compared to what I call the Big Eight and that I've even heard you call the Big Four, um, <laughs> Pluto doesn't really fit into those categories and clearly is a tier – uh, in a different tier than those objects. Uh, I know you would agree with that. What would you like a general listener to think about when they think about Pluto and this idea of planethood? Yeah, I would, I would say you're absolutely right. And um, the IAU definition, you know, it was the actual written definition was constructed on over, they, they, they fought about it for weeks and they finally had a deadline, and I think people stayed up all night and wrote it, and they wrote it down. And I, I don't particularly like the written version of it, and I think it, it invites people to complain about it. And yet the concept is rock solid. And really, in astronomy, 
we work in concepts. We don't work in definition. There is no definition of what is a star or what is a galaxy. There's concepts and we understand those concepts. So for the concept of what is a planet is really a very simple one. And if you don't understand the concept, you really, I think, are not understanding what the solar system is like. If you looked at the solar system for the first time and you had not been told that Pluto is a planet or that, that the Earth is a planet or anything else, you just looked at the solar system for the first time, you would see these four large bodies in these circular orbits going around the sun. And then if you look more closely, you would see that between all of those large bodies flitting in and out and being pushed around by the large bodies, there are millions and millions of smaller bodies. The, the large bodies don't care anything about the small bodies. The small bodies come and they go, they get scattered away by the large bodies. Uh, the small bodies care entirely about the large bodies because all of their what they do and where they go is totally dominated by the large bodies. Those large bodies are the planets, the eight planets, and and the small bodies are everything else. And if if you somehow were to put Pluto into that category of planet, you are you are misclassifying it. You're, you're turning it into you're sort of describing it as something that it's not. And I, I really think the main reason that that tends to happen these days is both a combination of, of confusion and, and nostalgia. I think if when people see pictures of what the solar system really is like and how the bodies are, how big they are, where they're arranged, it's very difficult for the people not to look at that and say, oh, okay, I understand. I did not understand the IAU definition before, but now I get what they're trying to say. I understand the IAU concept even if not the the three-part silly definition that they wrote down. You know, and I think that's really interesting because one of one of the favorite papers I have that came out over the last decade was a few years ago, uh, a scientist named Jean-Luc Margot wrote a paper where he said, hey, if we took, you know, our exo are the IAU's criteria what you just talked about as the okay look I know it when I see it if you have an object that um, it orbits the its parent star and nothing else will replace the sun with parent star so that this applies to all systems um, and you say this object uh, dominates its orbit gravitationally which means you know if you said this is gonna be a stable system for a billion years four billion billion years, 10 billion years, um, what is the mass at this given radius that a planet would need to have in order to gravitationally clear out its orbit, which is the second IAU criteria. And also, let's make sure it doesn't, uh, it isn't a moon itself, that it is like the dominant gravitational body at its orbital distance. If you take those three criteria and you generically say, we're going to call that a planet, uh, then you can see immediately, oh, if we were using the stellar wobble method or the transit method and had a good alignment, these are things that would show up as planets. If we applied that definition of where we draw that line to our own solar system, you'll find that, yep, the eight planets are in, everything else is out. Interestingly, if you took the Earth away 
and you replace the Earth with Earth's moon, that would be right on the border of what is and isn't a planet. And the very fact to me that you can write down one universal scaling relation that you can apply to any star or any planetary system in the universe, and when you ask, is something a planet or not, it depends only on this one measurable parameter of its mass versus its orbital distance, you can determine whether it's a planet or not. I feel like the fact that you can do that and that you get this consistent definition where all the planets are in, all the non-planets are out, and you can apply this to any solar system, I think... I think that's exactly the type of scientific definition that that someone who was craving something like this would want. I think that satisfies everything you could possibly ask for. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, I, I likewise like that paper by Jean-Luc Margot. Um, I, and I think the other interesting thing about that paper is is when you when you calculate this criterion, like h- how many times more massive would something have to be or less massive would something have to be to be a to be a planet you see that the eight planets of our solar system are well above the threshold and the most massive thing that's not a planet that we know of is is eris and it's well below the, the threshold and pluto is well below the threshold too there it's it's not like I, I sometimes have people tell me that that the that astronomers are, are mean and arbitrary for uh, demoting pluto and i i always say look Sure, we're mean, but we're not arbitrary. This is if you look at this, there's a huge difference between the eight planets and everything else below it. You would you would be you'd have to be blind to not want to draw a line right there where there's a huge gap in the distribution. So I, I think it's 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 not just that there's this mathematical thing that works out for a definition. What it, what you're really showing talking about is that the concept is really quite strong and quite universal. That that planetary systems seem to uh, be things in which you have large stable objects and then they can be surrounded by by belts essentially of, of small bodies that are being pushed around asteroid belts Kuiper belts whatever kind of belts you want to call them and that seems to be a universal thing that's going on people often say to me well but what if there were another thing right there in the same orbit and it wouldn't be a planet and the answer is it's much more interesting to say isn't it interesting that there there isn't anything else in this orbit? Let's not make up weird hypothetical things that would never happen. Let's understand why they don't happen. They don't happen because physics does not allow all possibilities. Yes, you can speculate and say, well, gosh, what if the, an Earth-sized object in the Kuiper belt wouldn't be classified as a planet? That's true by the by the concept that we're talking about here. But it's more important to ask yourself, how come there's not an Earth-sized thing in the Kuiper belt? And the answer is the solar system couldn't make one. It would have been happy to do it. The solar system really has done a very good job of segregating itself into these big things, into these small things. Yeah, and from what we can tell from, you know, it's still in the early days of this type of science, but from what we can tell uh, using uh, ALMA to observe planetary systems that are first forming, it looks like this... uh, you form planets and you get gaps in potential bands, and then the bands will either coalesce and form large collections of objects like an asteroid belt or a Kuiper belt, or they will gravitate and they will form their own protoplanets, which can either grow into planets or get ejected or merge. Um, and this is a consistent picture that we see across all solar systems. I think I think it's very reasonable to say, yes, you can you can imagine these corner cases, and there are probably you know, 
places in the galaxy or the universe where they exist. But if we're talking about one in a thousand, one in a million, one in a billion, one in a trillion star systems that exhibit something like this, we're not really talking about the general case. We're talking about corner cases. And what we're trying to do right now is to is to cast the broadest net and say, what is the broad categorization that things fall into? And I think when you start looking at this line we've drawn for this is a planet, this is not a planet, um, I think it's really interesting where that line falls, because if it's okay with you to make a little segue, um, because you can start asking questions like, okay, if you had a world like Eris or Pluto or Sedna, um, how massive would this world, based on its orbital distance, have to be in order to cross that planetary threshold? You're right. If you put an Earth mass object out there, it, it wouldn't be a planet anymore, you know, which should go to show that real estate importance actually extends to astronomy too. And location, location, location really matters when it comes to your entire past history and how you got to be the thing you are today. But I find it very interesting that if you were only a few times more massive than planet Earth at those distances, you could indeed be classified as a planet. If you were – I know the common term is super Earth, but I'll, I prefer to call it mini Neptune because they'd, they'd almost certainly have to have a hydrogen or helium envelope to be as massive as they'd need to be, uh, especially at that – ultra distant location. Uh, but if you had a mini Neptune or super Earth mass world out there, that could cross the threshold of being a planet under this schematic definition. And, it, and it's not, um, and sometimes people, people get a little bit too caught up in, okay, the definition says this, is it a planet? Is it not a planet? Is it a planet? Not a planet? The, the difference will be, um, e even if you put Earth in the Kuiper belt, the Kuiper belt would still exist. If you put in something a couple times, a couple more greater than the, the mass of the Earth, three, four times the mass of the Earth in the Kuiper Belt, the Kuiper Belt wouldn't exist anymore. It would suddenly start to dominate that region of space. That's really the key point. Not not necessarily just that you know should be is does it does it cross the threshold of plan or not, but it really is the sensible idea of these these things are behaving differently. But it's not just that they behave differently now. It also means that they formed differently. It means that something something that would be three or four or five times the mass of the Earth would have formed by collecting all of the material in its region and pulling it into itself, including the hydrogen helium, like you say, as opposed to all these, these small objects out in the Kuiper belt that really just formed from uh, little bits of, of, of ice and dust that coagulated together but were never given a chance to get much bigger. Yeah, and... And I think that that's pretty interesting because if we had a massive enough object out there in the Kuiper Belt, it would. It would clear the Kuiper Belt away. Just like if you had a mass enough body in the asteroid belt, you wouldn't have an asteroid belt. You'd get one planet-like object instead. That's right. Well, you have proposed what hit the scene as a very controversial idea, but that immediately gained a lot of attention that maybe – beyond the Kuiper Belt, after the Kuiper Cliff, um, but before you get to the Inner Oort Cloud, that there is a massive either super-Earth or mini-Neptune out there, and maybe we can find it. Now, you had based this only on what I would call um, 
some circumstantial evidence, but you found this evidence very compelling. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit about why you think such an object would exist and what the evidence is that would lead someone who was open-minded but still skeptical to admit this as a possibility? Yeah, so so I would say, um, you know, circumstantial evidence, everything in astronomy, if you are, are making a hypothesis of something that you don't see, it's all circumstantial. So that's that's as good as we can do until we actually find this planet itself. But let me let me tell you the, the, the basic idea and, and why we think it's really out there. So we know of all of these objects out in the Kuiper belt. And for years, every time something new was found in the outer solar system, astronomers wanted to, to watch it and look to see if it maybe showed evidence for another planet out there. The, the idea that there's another planet out past Neptune has been something that has gotten excited uh, astronomers excited since about five minutes after Neptune was discovered. Uh, and I, I think... I, I tried to actually find all the different predictions that have been made in the past uh, 150 years, and I found like 35 of them. So people have been yeah. predicting planets past Neptune 150 years, at least 35 times. You know, there's a very good popular treatment of that uh, in a book by Govert Schilling, which is meant for popular yes. consumption called The Hunt yes. for Planet X. And it talks yeah. about Pluto, its demotion, and all of the wild ideas that have come up from Nemesis to, you know, things I don't even remember, even though I read it, about what could be there beyond Pluto. And people have, you know, speculated for a long time. Um, but all the ideas have really failed to turn up the evidence you'd want to support their existence. Yeah, absolutely true. And so the, the most famous of these, of course, is Pluto itself. So Pluto was found um, at the Lowell Observatory because Percival Lowell had predicted a planet. He predicted a planet um, because he thought that Uranus and Neptune were not in the right places. They were being tugged along by something else. And he said, I think there's a planet, tried to calculate where it was, founded the Lowell Observatory to look for it. Uh, he passed away, but within about 15 years, Clyde Tombaugh found Pluto. And because Clyde Tombaugh found Pluto while looking for a planet beyond Neptune, it was widely assumed to be the planet that that was perturbing Uranus and Neptune. Um, to, to be that planet, it would have had to be 250,000 times more massive than it actually is. So it is not a planet perturbing Uranus and Neptune. And in fact, we now know Uranus and Neptune aren't perturbed at all. They were just some bad observations that people had made early uh, in the 19th century. But this this also brings up something very interesting. You mentioned, you know, back at the beginning of the interview, that we were lucky in 1929 that Clyde Tombaugh found Pluto because one, it was really at the limit of the faintness that you could observe it at. But also, isn't it true that, you know, with the instruments he had, it wasn't feasible to survey the entire sky. He was just surveying particular regions of the sky where he thought that such an object that did perturb Neptune or Uranus might be located. Yeah, that's that's not entirely true. Uh, he, he actually had a great instrument for surveying large swaths of sky because he used photographic plates. Photographic plate is literally a big piece of glass onto which you paint photographic emulsion. And so it is a huge detector. You can cover big areas of the sky just by making a bigger piece of glass. We actually lost that capability starting in about the 1980s when we moved from photographic plates 
to uh, CCDs, digital detectors. And, you know, if you remember the first digital cameras were 600 by 400 pixels, some ridiculously small thing. They are just now catching up with what the photographic plates were. So photographic plates are not very sensitive, but they are incredibly good for covering big areas of the sky. So good, um, strangely enough, that in 1998, one of the very first things I did when I started being interested in the outer solar system, I, I did what is probably the last photographic plate survey of a wide swath of the sky looking for, um, for something in the sky. And I looked, I looked along the ecliptic, the region where the planets are. And I was, I was just one photographic plate width away from having found Eris back in 1999. If I had just gone South one more photographic plate width, which I didn't do. And it would, it would have been, it would have shown up on our plates. That would have been pretty fun. I mean, that would have been amazing if you had brought back this older technique or you had continued using an older technique and you found the object that would wind up turning astronomy on his head. Uh, Luckily you did wind up finding that object. You just found it a few years later. Yeah, it took me it took me a little while, and it was because we then went to CCDs, and they were smaller, and we had to spend more time covering the sky. But we could go much deeper and found many more things. But Clyde Tombaugh um, did, in the end, end up surveying a pretty wide swath of the sky. Uh, it, you are right, though, that he found Pluto early on because he was looking where he thought it should be. But even Clyde Tombaugh realized uh, pretty quickly that it was not the big planet for which. Um, he was searching. And so he ended up searching the rest of the sky, never finding anything else like it. And uh, I think always wondered what, what was going on with that uh, mysterious planet X that, that uh, Percival Lowell had been looking for. This is also, by the way, the, the origin of the term planet X. Planet X is not a generic term for any unknown planet beyond Neptune. This is That was uh, Percival Lowell's specific prediction of a specific planet which turned out not to be true. Right. And at least at least Tombaugh did live long enough. He didn't live long enough to see the discovery of Eris, but he did live long enough to see the discovery of Kuiper Belt objects. Uh, of, the, of the second Kuiper Belt object, I would say. He, he lived long enough because he discovered the first one. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. But but he made it till 97. So I think it was it was fair to say, like, we knew Pluto and the Plutonian system wasn't the only one out there at that point. Right. So, so this idea, you know, people have been have been desperately trying to come up with ideas that there are other planets out there, just because it's a fun idea. Astronomers like the idea. So, when the Kuiper Belt was first discovered, and it was realized that there was this Kuiper Cliff that you mentioned, which is that the number of Kuiper Belt objects drops off dramatically, uh, right in one spot. The first thing that astronomers started to say was, "Whoa, oh, maybe it's a planet. Maybe it's a planet," and started looking for a planet out there. I mean, even I was looking for a planet out there because could have been a planet. So basically. Yeah, if you, if you don't have solve. objects, right, your belt ends, you wonder, is yeah, there like, something outside of it that's collecting the things that would otherwise be there? The answer is no, <laughs> <laughs> but, it was, uh, but but didn't stop people from speculating and from looking. And so many other times people have done this. So in, in um, oh boy, three, four years ago now, um, Constantine Batigan and I, Constantine is another professor in planetary science just down the hall from me. He and I were uh, looking at a paper that was written by uh, another set of colleagues, um, Chad Trujillo and Scott Shepard, and they had discovered something really weird in the outer solar system. They had discovered that all of the very most distant objects shared a property of the orbit called the argument of perihelion, 
And I'll tell you, it was sufficiently weird that they, that an, an obscure, that almost nobody knew what argument of perihelion even meant. If you had asked a hundred planetary astronomers what it meant, they'd be like, ah, uh, you know, it's something to do with the orbit. And no one could describe it. Well, um, well, we all know what perihelion means. We all know that that's the closest an object comes to the gravitational body that it it mainly orbits in its elliptical path. That's what perihelion is. What yeah. what is argument of perihelion? So, in, in in gravitational dynamics, an argument you can, you can have two things. You can have longitudes and you can have arguments. Longitudes make sense. It's a direction. An argument is not a longitude, but it's a difference between two longitudes. So it depends on certain things. So, so literally, the argument perihelion is the difference between the direction at which the object comes closest to the sun and the direction where the object crosses the plane of the ecliptic, the plane of the planets. And if you think about that very hard you you can't because you're like what that just I, I don't even understand what that means and and the reason is is because it's this weird thing it's a, it's a relative number it's a it's a it's a frame a frame of reference dependent number the best example analogy i can come up with is is uh, imagine that you you're looking at a plaza you're you're luck- watching a bunch of people walking around a plaza from above and they're all walking in different directions and for some reason that you can't understand every single person is looking 45 degrees to their right side. They're all walking different directions, so they're all looking in different directions, but they're all tilted 45 degrees to the right side. That 45 degrees would be an argument. It means that they're 45 degrees from their direction of motion, and it's really hard to explain. What the heck could cause everybody who's walking in different directions to be looking 45 degrees to their right side? This is this is what we were trying to figure out when we looked at this paper of, of uh Chad Drahue and Scott Shepard, because it made no sense. Of course, so Chad, so Scott is said, this like saying if the Milky Way is the thing we're orbiting and we're our solar system and the sun orbits the Milky Way in this elliptical orbit, it's going to have a place where, you know, it'll have its semi-major axis. It'll have its, if we took the pericenter and the apcenter and we drew that line to connect them, uh, we'd get a direction in space. We'd get like a a line that defined a certain axis. Yes. Uh, If we then took something like, okay, let's pick a different one, like eventually the sun is going to dip right through the center of the galactic plane and it's going to come up 180 degrees-ish from there, also through the galactic plane, you know, plus or minus depending on certain factors, but you can draw another line there connecting that, connecting the sun's position as it crosses the galactic plane. Would an argument be the angle that those two lines make? Is that an example of an argument? That that is precisely correct. In fact, that is the argument of perihelion. That, That is the definition of it. And we're just doing it instead of for the sun around our galaxy, we're doing that for these individual uh, objects we found that are beyond Neptune, these trans-Neptunian objects um, that orbit the sun in these elliptical orbits. That's right. So it's so it's really weird. I, 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 I'm going to go back to that analogy of all these people walking around the plaza. So it's the difference between two angles. So in this case, it's the difference between where they're looking and, and which way they're walking. And it's always fixed at 45 degrees. And that's, that's weird. You can't think of any good reason why people would do that. What, what Constantine and I realized 
um, after starting to work on this is that there was one, in fact, the one critical part of it that had been missed, which is that all of the all of the, all the people on the plaza were not walking in random directions. They were basically all walking the same direction. Everybody's walking the same direction and looking 45 degrees to their right because they're all basically looking in one direction at one thing. What that really means is that, yes, the arguments of perihelion are sort of clustered, but more importantly, the that that line that connects the apocenter and the pericenter is is that all those lines are also clustered. And so basically, forget about what all these terms mean. It just means that all the orbits are lined up. They're not lined up in these weird coordinates that don't make sense. In physical space, if you draw these very eccentric orbits, they all go off to their most distant locations in the same direction. And that is something that we can understand. The 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 weird thing about the argument of perihelion, there's no physics that can describe that. So so people people mostly thought it was wrong or something was funny going on and nobody knew what to do about it. But when we realized that it was the that the orbits themselves are lined up, there are many different potential things that could physically cause that. So Constantine and I spent about a year trying to come up with any explanation that was not, it's a planet. Because we did not want to be the 35th and 36th people to stand up and say, oh, I think we found a planet in the outer solar system and, and be wrong like everybody else has been wrong before. Because it's just it just seems a little bit ridiculous. So we spent we spent a long time trying to come up with other explanations. Things like self-gravity or perturbation from the Milky Way galaxy or or you name it. We tried all these other things. And the answer is there is nothing else that can explain it. We were we were left at the end with the idea that the only thing that can explain this this alignment of these objects in the outer solar system is a distant eccentric inclined giant planet um far far beyond neptune and uh boy we were this didn't make us happy we were like we do not want to write this paper we don't we don't want to stand up and say this this sounds just wrong and and until we we did a few more things we did computer simulations we showed that the computer simulations work the computer simulations inadvertently i mean not inadvertently but the computer simulations showed what else happened and they they explained three three or four other phenomena in the solar system that we hadn't even been trying to explain and that's when we realized oh this is this is actually this actually really works this this explains not just the alignment but all these other things that nobody had an explanation for suddenly we have one explanation that that works for everything okay we we believed it's true so we so we published this paper three and a half years ago under the assumption that pretty quickly some astronomer somewhere would come up with an alternative explanation because this is what's fun to do. If somebody publishes some paper that says there's a planet, you know, the the, the, the most fun thing to do is to show that they're wrong and, and dumb for saying that. So we, we knew somebody was going to do it. Well, I think you anticipated that very well because I would say with your initial announcement, you you almost invited, maybe even almost dared the community to try and show why this was wrong and you didn't do this with a like you know like you were the opera experiment and you're like okay we know things don't go faster than light but we measured it can you help us find our loose cable this was really a hey we got this weird data it looked weird we tried a few different things and when we tried this one hypothesis look at all the pieces that fell into place yeah 
And, uh, but, you know, astronomers are, are smart people. We assumed that somebody would come up with an alternative explanation that worked pretty quickly. And in the end, it's now been three and a half years, and uh, there are zero alternative explanations that explain the data. And that, I, I, I have to tell you, that surprises me. I really thought that there must be something else. And, and given that nobody's been able to come up with one, and, I'm, and I know people have been trying, that, that's pretty encouraging to me that this really is what's going on. The one question um, that we brought up and that has been discussed a lot is, okay, if you believe the data are showing what they're showing, that there's this alignment of objects and all these other things, then as far as we can tell, there is no other explanation. However, maybe the data aren't really showing that. Maybe you're fooling yourselves about the data. It's easy to fool yourself about data. You know, you want to see patterns. The human eye picks out patterns. The human brain picks out patterns all the time. You look at a big collection of objects and you're, you're drawn quickly to the ones that seem weird and you, you start to make explanations for it. Maybe... There's nothing really going on except for us seeking patterns. So, you know, we made predictions about uh, what would happen as we continue to find more objects. They that they would be, you know, something like seventy to eighty percent of the objects that are that far away should be aligned the way they are. So, as of now, there are I don't know, factor of two, factor of two and a half more objects than we knew of at the time. Uh, they're aligned the way they're supposed to be. Everything is working out that way. Uh, we have gone through and done exhaustive analysis of the probabilities that we would find this due to chance and due to astronomers not looking in certain areas of the sky and everything else. And in the end, we, we come up with a 0.2% uh, probability that you, would, that you would accidentally see these observations and fool yourself into, into thinking that they were real, even if they weren't real. I, I, that's pretty good to me. And that's not even taking into account all the other things that this explains. This is just taking into account just the alignments of the objects. So the fact that nothing else can explain it, the fact that the statistics, I, I don't, I don't see any way around the statistics. Uh, the fact that it's, it's, you know, in, in some ways, you, you, I, I would say it's not even a controversial idea in, in one way, which is that it's not there. No one is surprised by the idea that there could be a planet out there. Um, you know, once we proposed it and once we suggested, we, we thought the, the most likely way that it got there was that it probably formed in the Uranus-Neptune region, got got uh, scattered out by, there by Jupiter-Saturn, probably happened early on when there were stars around in the cluster that the sun formed in. And so those stars gave it a little bit of a gravitational jostle. When we suggested that back in the early days, you know, people who studied these things said, yeah, that there's no, no one would be even slightly surprised if that were true. That just seems like a perfectly plausible thing to have happen. Uh, it doesn't need to be true. Plausible doesn't mean that it is true, but it just means that it's not even a weird explanation. You know, there are all these weird things going on in the solar system. There's one really simple explanation that uh, explains them all. And the statistics are really, I, I, I don't see any way out of it. I'm, I am uh, completely convinced that it's out there and that we're going to find it uh, in the fairly near future. I mean, that's that's definitely an optimistic take on it. And it's certainly not unreasonably optimistic. Um, but like you said, you know, whenever you are discovering the first few types of a new kind of object in the universe, you're, you're always worried, 
are the things I'm finding biased in some really important way? Um, you know, in astronomy, we can look at uh, the farthest galaxies that we can see, and we see them, but we know, or at least we strongly suspect, that the galaxies we're seeing are not representative of the typical galaxies that are out there, that we're finding the brightest, most easily visible galaxies, because we're doing it right at the limits of our instrumentation. We're doing it, you know, in these new locations for the first time, and so we're not getting a fair and accurate census of everything that's out there, we're getting the objects that cross that threshold that we can see. Now, when it comes to uh, these Kuiper Belt objects in these highly eccentric orbits, or in these specific orbits that you're looking at that were first identified in the Shepard and Trujillo paper, um, I have to worry, and I know I'm not the only one who's worried about it, are these data that we've collected, that we're examining, that we're finding this, you know, 99.8% confidence, which is, you know, a little over three sigma, that we're confident this is a real effect. Is this really going to be a real effect? Or is this data possibly biased in some way? It might not be a Malmquist bias. It might be something called detection bias because of where you're looking at certain times of the year to make these observations. But is that possible? I should ask you, is it possible that bias is the real culprit here and that this data that you're using to infer the existence of Planet Nine isn't as trustworthy as your results, you know, would indicate? So so bias is critically important. And if you don't account for bias, you can't even talk about this. And so that was the first thing that we um, tried to deal with in the in the early paper. And we did an estimate because doing the job right was hard and we were just mostly trying to get the idea out there. And our estimate of the bias showed that it was not a very big problem. And so we, we moved on. Since that time, uh, other people have questioned whether bias is a big problem or not. It's weird. The, the, there's really only one group who's worrying about this. And they, they are really concerned about bias because their own survey is so biased. This is the ASOS group. Because they really do only look in two spots in the sky, and then they show, look, if you only look in two spots in the sky, your observations are biased to these two spots in the sky. And they are absolutely right, but everybody else doesn't only look in those two spots in the sky. All the other surveys that have been done that have found these objects have been uh, not uniform across the sky, but really well spread across the sky. So if you use all of the data and correctly account for the biases. So that number that I told you, that 99.8, is uh, three years worth of effort to really calculate the biases correctly for all of the data, which you have to do. You can't just assume that the, what you see is what you get. You have to correct for these biases because there are places that astronomers don't look. Astronomers don't look for Kuiper Belt objects in the middle of the Milky Way galaxy because the Milky Way galaxy is, is bright in the background, for example. That's really the only place they don't look. They look pretty much everywhere else. And if you look at where Kuiper Belt objects have been discovered around the sky, you see that they are pretty uniformly distributed in discovery space. But we go through in gory detail and calculate the bias on every single object. Basically, what is the chance we would have found it at this location with the orbit that it has given the collection of data that exists um, in 
in all the catalogs in all of the world? And then what is the probability that from this collection of data, you would come up with a something that looks as weirdly skewed as the data that we have is? And that's what that 99.8% is. I, I, I understand that this is that people, you know, this is this is the biggest worry is that if 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 there's nothing else that can explain it, then we really need to make sure that bias is not the thing that's doing it by the combination of bias and just bad luck. And uh, I, I think there's no hint that that's what's going on anymore. And I think that the, the one group that still is kind of the holdout about that uh, really has not even examined their own data very carefully. Their, their own data. Yes, it's true that there's bias in their own data, but their own data are more consistent with our hypothesis than with the hypothesis that it's in a uh, that there's nothing going on out there. So they're they're being, I think, a little bit overly reluctant to uh, to accept what the data are saying. It's it's good to be skeptical, but forcing yourself to just not believe because you don't want to is going beyond the bounds of, I think, healthy skepticism. So, but the nice thing is, I think, often in science we sit around and argue about these things and. The person who wins is the one who argues the loudest, and then everybody listens to them and believes it. But you don't have to believe it. Nobody has to believe it. We just have to go find it. Um, whether whether you believe my calculation of bias or you believe it's all just bias, uh, it will all be moot the day that this is discovered, and uh, and we see what's really going on out there. And that's and that's really interesting too. I mean, that's that's one of the best things I like is even if you proposed an idea that is wild pie in the sky and and it wasn't like something that people would be like, oh, this is really well motivated, um, because it's something that can be examined observationally and put to the test, and we can either say it's there or it's not. I feel like that. That gives this an extra level of testability that is, you know, that is often missing in certain uh, hypothetical regions of astronomy or physics. And the fact that we can go out and either do the survey we need with advanced technology or, you know, do the exhaustive searching we'd need that'll take a very long time with current technology we'll either find planet nine or we won't. And if it's there, then we're going to find it. And if it's not there, we're going to rule it out because, you know, that's, if you take all the data that will decide the matter, you'll, you'll at last know. I think it's very interesting that the orbital parameters that you've deduced this hypothetical planet should have are just so that it's, it's small enough and low enough in mass that it is beyond the limits of infrared detection from its own light, that it's far enough away and faint enough. You got to remember when you are looking at an object that's twice as far away in the outer solar system from another object, it's only one sixteenth as bright because it's that one over r squared at double the distance for the sunlight to reach it. And then it's that additional one over r squared for that light to come all the way back to us back in the inner solar system. So this object that you're looking for, it has the right parameters that really only our 8 and 10 meter class telescopes are capable of detecting it, that you need these largely spaced observation times in order to see something move over time. And when I say largely spaced, I, I think I'm probably talking about like, you know, you want years if you actually no, want to reconstruct no, 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 no. its orbit. Nope. You might need days. you might need just a few days if you want to catch its motion on the sky. 
Yeah, yeah. To get its orbit, you'll you'll need some fraction of its orbital period, and its orbital period is something like five thousand years. So, it will take a while to get the orbit. But uh, just detecting it and knowing that you have detected it will take two days. Right. This night to night motion is is almost enough. It's enough over two nights with the amount of angular separation it should move. Absolutely. Yeah. So, no, but thank you for jumping in. Don't let me get anything wrong. <laughs> so. Uh, an, an interesting update um, that we haven't had the chance to uh, really get the word out there yet is that in the past three years, you know, again, our first paper three and a half years ago was really just the basics. We didn't have time to explore everything. We've now done a lot more exploration, both analytically and computationally, and everything has gotten a, a, a little bit smaller by by maybe a factor of, of two. Um, so it's we, we said before, we, we were guessing there was 10 Earth masses, and, and uh, but we said, well, somewhere between 5 and 20. We don't know. Now the answer, we're pretty convinced, is about 6 with an uncertainty of about 1. So it's about, so I'll call it a 6 Earth mass. Um, we also used to think it was something like 700 astronomical units away, uh, at least the, the average distance, and on a very, very elongated orbit, which puts it really far away at when it's at its uh, most distant. We actually now realize that it's a, it's a bit closer. It's more like 350 instead of 700, and it's not nearly as eccentric. And so, actually, that combination means that at its at its faintest, it's still not that faint. I don't think we need eight to ten meter telescopes anymore. I think actually we're in range of a lot more telescopes across the planet than we thought we were. Um, so we are we are actually spending our time right now not going off to telescopes looking for it but rather searching through data that already exists, seeing if it's in there. See, I would bet with something like this that the the dream machine is almost there because with something like LSST that will cover, you know, just enormous swaths of the sky at once and will do it sort of like on a panstar style basis where it it views all these different regions over and over and over. I think as soon as that comes online within the first, you know, few months of sky coverage it gets, you, you should know, shouldn't you? Yeah, so I, I would say within the first year, because you still have to cover the right section of the sky as the as the sky goes around. But yeah, um, LSST will find it in a year. There's there's pretty much no way for it to hide from LSST in like 2022, 2023. So I I feel like I'm in a race against LSST. I would rather find it before then, but I can I can I can wait. If I have to wait, I can wait. But I think I think we'll find it before then. I think we have a good shot. Now, how do you feel about, you know, curmudgeonly science writers like me who won't believe that this is real until, you know, it does show up in the data? I, I don't think anybody should believe it's real until it shows up in the data. Um, and, you know, if, you, if, if you're just going on uh, the number of times in the past when some idiot astronomer has said there's a planet out there – you know, it's wise to be skeptical of, of these sorts of things. So I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being skeptical about it. If you want to delve in more deeply, uh, you know, it's it's worth looking at the papers, these these papers where we do the difficult calculations that show what the probability is. Nobody wants to read those papers. They're hard to read. They're hard to understand. Um, people like instead to read, to not even read the papers, but read the press release that says, oh, I don't know, it might be bias. It's easy to write that press release, and then everybody listens to it and says, might be biased. And, you know, we don't do a press release with every paper we write. We just do our work and, and write the papers, and people can read them if they want to. Um, so I, I don't expect anybody to believe it 
without going through the, the data. No one should believe it without looking at the data themselves, looking at the papers themselves. And if you don't do that, there's no reason not to be skeptical. But, you know, you could also say, I don't know, maybe these guys know what they're talking about. But you never believe anybody. Don't believe astronomers. They're all crazy. <laughs> but But to be completely fair, I think – it is it is compelling that when you look at the argument of perihelion, like when you look at the argument between these two lines of all the orbits of all of these objects, I believe you started with just maybe six of them, and you, now you're up to somewhere around I think uh, I think o over a dozen and maybe close to twenty at this point. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, if you look at these objects, uh. I believe the vast majority of them show this same alignment in argument of perihelion. You mentioned so, but, the OSO no, survey. At, I'm yeah. sorry. Don't so argument of perihelion we should not talk about ever again because it was it was a red herring that just was confusing. So the alignment is now in it sounds the same, but it's very different. The alignment is in longitude of perihelion. It's no longer an argument, which is this weird relative thing. It's that they're pointed in the same direction. That's longitude of perihelion. So forget anything you ever learned about argument of perihelion, and it's all about the longitude of perihelion. And yes, so these are as, as our And when you say longitude of perihelion, that means when you draw the line along this orbit's semi-major axis, what direction does that point in? Exactly. Okay. Um, and that's that's pretty interesting because if you're saying we're connecting aphelion to perihelion, that's the major axis, and we're saying what direction does that go in, you can you can easily envision a scenario where you have all of these slow moving because they're out in the Kuiper belt objects that if they get close enough to the same gravitationally perturbing source, right, the same massive object out there, um, that that massive object is going to give it a kick that is going to result in at least related orbital parameters for these objects. That's that's the imaginary picture I've got in my mind for how this would work. Yeah, so it's so it's not actually how it works. Um, although sweet, it's, <laughs> but but it's a good way to imagine it. It's it's actually more. It's we kind of thought that's how it worked too when we first thought about it, and now in in detailed examination, uh, the, the way it actually works is mostly these things stay as far away from the planet as they can, and it's not really even that they stay far away. I mean, they, there is they do it they do it sort of actively. Gravitational perturbations make it happen, but basically, Planet Nine, because it's a planet, as we talked about earlier, it's in the process of clearing things away from its orbit, and it's done that already for almost everything. The only ones it hasn't yet cleared away in its orbit are the ones that are on the opposite side most of the time that it hasn't gotten the chance to get to. But it will if you come back in another billion years, uh, most of these objects that we're looking at will not be there anymore. So you're saying that we should actually expect, if we can find Planet Nine, um, we should expect that, I guess, on the other side of its orbit, so what would be close to its uh, L3 orbit, right, the Lagrange point on the opposite side, I know it's unstable, but, but there should be a cluster of, you know, Kuiper Belt-like objects that are out there that haven't yet been cleared, but that should be the only place in the orbit where they exist. Yeah, we haven't actually seen that specific effect in the simulation, so I, I think it's not stable enough that you'll see anything um, at that location. 
and what we see, you know, when I say it's cleared out the other things, just like, you know, the Earth has cleared out its vicinity, but that doesn't stop near-Earth asteroids from zipping by every once in a while. They're not stable. There are no stable objects around the Earth. Same is true of Planet Nine. There are no stable objects in orbits that cross the orbit of Planet Nine, except for these ones that are uh, as far away from it as possible. And the reason that they're as far away from as possible is because, again, they're on these very eccentric orbits pointing off in one direction. Planet Nine is on a very eccentric orbit pointing off 180 degrees away. So they spend most of their time 180 degrees away from each other in the solar system and, and, and only rarely interact. And that's the only reason these objects are still around. All right. So I want to present you with two hypothetical scenarios. Um, one is that, you know, five years from now, we meet up and either we found Planet Nine, you and Constantine are right, and, you know, everyone who has ever disagreed with you is eating a big bowl of crow, or... Um, it's five years from now. We've got the data from LSST. We've got all the archival data that already exists, and there's no Planet Nine out there. In either of those cases, um, can you envision what you would learn as the primary lesson or what you would want us to learn as the primary lesson from, from this whole ordeal? So, so I'm gonna I'm gonna request six years instead of five because I want I want long enough that LSST has been operational, and this is assuming that LSST really starts in 2022. So, say say LSST has been operational for three years, they really do cover the area of the sky that they need to. The area of the sky they need to is a little further north than they're planning on it, but I think it's a compelling enough reason to go look a little further north. So, let's say all that happens and they don't find it, and no one else has found it. Um, one of two things will happen. LSST, in addition to looking for Planet Nine, will find a ton of new Kuiper Belt objects in, a, in, in an incredibly unbiased way. And so maybe this pattern that we thought we saw disappears when LSST starts to operate. And we just, you know, once again, uh, we are fooled by the, the demons of statistics and bias and that thing that your brain does when it starts to see these patterns and makes up stories. And, and the lesson is that, you know, Constantine, Constantine and I are idiot astronomers just like the other idiot astronomers for the last 150 years um, who are easily fooled into believing that there's a planet, that there's something sufficiently compelling about planets that it turns astronomers into, into babbling morons. Um, that, that could well be the answer. Uh, so that's one answer. What if, though, Planet 9 is not found, but the pattern holds up? That's weird because I don't know anything else that can make that pattern. And so that means that people who are theorists, that's not me. I'm on the observational side. People who are theorists need to get it together. They, there is something really weird going on gravitationally in the solar system that is not explainable. You know, this happened once, time, once before, um, and it, it, it led to a pretty dramatic result, which was the, the perihelion precession of Mercury. So the perihelion precession of Mercury was known for a long time. And one reason that it could happen is because there's another planet interior to Mercury. So Leverrier, the very, the very Leverrier uh, who, who predicted the location of Neptune correctly, started working on why Mercury was precessing and hypothesized that there's a planet inside the orbit of Mercury and called planet Vulcan. And the physics was perfect. His planet perfectly explained why 
Mercury's orbit was being perturbed the way that it was. People search, people search, people search. There is no planet Vulcan. What's going on? Of course, we all now know the answer that the precession of the perihelion of Mercury is due to general relativity that they didn't know about back then. So, you know, if this is pointing to some physics that we don't know about, I would say that our, our job has, has been, our, our time has been well spent. Uh, I, I, I don't expect that it's going to point to something, you know, bigger than relativity, but, but maybe there's something there that's going on that we don't know about. And I think that's really interesting because we can look at three points in the solar system's past where something looked wrong with a planet's orbit. And in the case of Uranus, that's because the planet Neptune was there. Like you said, Urbain Le Verrier predicted its existence and, you know, a few weeks later, uh, Johann Gall and his assistant de Rest at the uh, Berlin Observatory got his letter, took a look, and within one degree of his predictions, holy crap, there's the new planet and it's Neptune now. Yeah. On the other hand, you have the story of Mercury where it could have been explained if you had an interior planet to it. In fact, much like uh, Planet Nine, as you say, it already has a name. People have already called it Vulcan, even though it doesn't exist. Um, but in that case, there was the lesson that, you know, we had something incorrect about gravity and this fixes it. And also, there's that example you gave earlier about Neptune, that Neptune's orbit was not lining up with what we thought. And that was the impetus to search for Planet X and find Pluto. Uh, but those observations were in error, that Pluto did not fix Neptune. Pluto is just there, and Neptune's orbit wasn't problematic at all. So you had three different cases in the solar system's history where we've discovered an error with an orbit. All three of them had different resolutions. Yeah, and so this could be one of those. Um, and, you know, that'll be pretty exciting. If, if we don't find it and somebody comes up with a new physical explanation of what's going on, that's pretty fun. I'm looking forward to that. Um, the best, and I would say, you know, because it's me, I will say the most likely explanation is that we find it because there's a planet out there. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a simple, elegant, and not at all strange explanation for all of these different behaviors that are going on in the outer solar system. So, your, you know, your question is: in six years, we find it. What lesson did we learn? Well, I don't think we that we need to take any lessons other than that, you know, look at the data. And if they're forcing you to say there's a planet, even though you know that you're going to look like an idiot when it's not found, you might as well just say it. Um, but but the real lesson will be we'll get to study it. I mean, this will be the exciting part. Discovering it is all uh, exciting. But studying it, it's it's a fifth giant planet of our solar system. I, I think at six Earth masses, it's pretty clear that it is a, a miniature version of Neptune rather than a large version of the Earth. And we'll get a chance to see what something that's like Neptune, but 15 times further away, colder, uh, formed differently, we don't we don't know. We'll get to study what this is like. Also, I, I find it very exciting that this is, uh, at six Earth masses, this is much more like a, the common mass of planets around other stars. Here's where we're, we're coming back to the synergies between the outer solar system and exoplanets. If you look around other stars in our galaxy, the most common type of planet is around five to ten times the mass of the Earth. I used to teach classes and say, isn't it weird that we don't have anything like that? And, and now I teach classes where I say, I'm pretty excited that we have something like that and we'll go find it and we'll learn what these planets that are so common in the rest of the galaxy are really like. So that's going to be what I think the real excitement, the scientific excitement that comes from the uh, 
what I think of as the imminent discovery of Planet Nine. I think that would be a fantastic thing. And I think that's a great note to end on as well. Uh, Mike Brown, thank you for joining us. Thank you for sharing all your insights about Pluto, the Kuiper Belt, the outer solar system, exoplanets, and of course, the controversial but promising Planet Nine. Do you have any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with? Oh, I think I think I think I've said everything that there is to say. Well, then we won't make you say anything else. Mike Brown, thank you for joining us. And all of you out there, thanks for listening to the Starts With a Bang podcast. This podcast is only made possible through the generous donations of our Patreon supporters. And I'd like to thank everyone donating to the Starts With a Bang Patreon at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to... Chad Marler, Cliff Elgin, Samir Kumar, Aaron Weiss, Rob Hansen, Pete Smoyer, Paulina Barron, Stefan Berniger, John Van Balaguyan, Dominic Turpin, Tim Gran, John Methot, Pavel Zuzelski, Thomas Sola, Frank, Eric Brown, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Denier, Sergei Gordienko, Joseph Dvorak, Jeffrey David Maracini, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Punitive Expedition, Patrick Dennis, Jens Kroger, Laird WH, Mark Armstrong, Jose Enrique, Sean Foley, Flo, Richard Jousey, DGE, John Corzura, Marcelo Barnabal, Rafal Wojcik, Danny, Andrew Douglas, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Rich Weigel, Christopher Hip, William Hogg, Rushin Shah, Alan Parikh, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vivanco, Chris Jukutas, Adrian Griffiths, William Blair, Jason Luttrell, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Pierre Franson, Dick Pills, Hannah Khan, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, David Krampotic, Randall Slimak, Jerry Wilterding, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, Mike Ahmed Lee Comsey, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Kevin Barnes, Radak Nesbeta, James Nance, Sidney Atwood, Nathan Hanna, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, Ben Head, David Taschioni, Philip Radilovic, and Braxton Thomason. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you next time here for more Starts With a Bang. Starts With a Bang.